Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. Sergeant Amos Hummiston of the 154th New York was killed in action at Gettysburg. This made him one of thousands to suffer the same fate. His body was never identified, but that also was hardly unique. What made his death a national event was the story of how his family learned about it from the ambrotype of his three children that he held in his hand, which led to a national search for their identity. Many of us know that much of the story, but there's much more, as we'll hear tonight from Mark Dunkelman, author of Gettysburg's Unknown Soldier, The Life, Death, and Celebrity of Amos Humiston. We'll do that tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Bullock. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath. Emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Coming to you tonight from the Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters in the Pandemic Annex at Oxford Road in Greenville, North Carolina. Not in the Brewster Building, not on the campus of East Carolina, not speaking for the university as always, but letting the university speak for itself and my guest likewise will do the same. It is the 23rd of September, 2020. Uh, ECU is winding down the first block of the fall semester. We are in a ill-judged experiment with block scheduling, which was sprung upon the faculty and students at a very late moment uh, so that we are uh, coping with it on a daily basis, but just about through block one of the fall semester and headed into block two next week. Indeed, there will uh, not be a live show next week because it will be final exam grading day. 
uh, one day to grade all the final exams in the university. A mystery how that's supposed to happen, but we'll find out. And uh, we'll be back the week after that. While I'm letting you know, I'll tell you who it's going to be on October 7th. Gary Gallagher will be here with his new book, The Enduring Civil War, Reflections on the Great American Crisis. The following week, another brand new book, one that is not even out yet. It'll come out October 6th. It's by H.W. Brands, prolific author. A new book titled The Zealot and the Emancipator about John Brown and Abraham Lincoln. And on the 21st, David Dixon, friend of the show, returns with his new book, Radical Warrior, August Willich's journey from German revolutionary to Union general. And there will be more after that, but we'll we'll hold off right there. Well, this past week, uh, the interesting news on the Civil War history front or American history front more broadly was the convening of a a White House panel on American history. Uh, I'm sure many of you saw that in the news or read about it. The gist of it, uh, as one of my students put it, was we're supposed to glorify American history, Uh, we being the professors who up to now, I learned, have been engaged in a left-wing indoctrination campaign. So to all of you who've been listening to the show for the last 17 years, I apologize for the left-wing indoctrination I have apparently foisted upon you in discussing the Civil War each week. But that was the accusation, and the solution was to teach American history with more focus on good things and less on things like slavery. The One could not it's hard. Uh, I, I was about to say we does not take this seriously, but when it comes from the White House and the President of the United States is involved, it's hard to ignore it utterly. Uh, there were no historians involved to speak of, with uh, uh, very few exceptions. The people involved were, uh, in some cases, textbook authors trying to sell their book. Uh, the argument was made the same. Every school in the country should use the same book as if we were a, uh, you know, Cold War. Warsaw Pact nation where everybody learns the same thing. But what was a bit troubling was that they did have one actual scholar and a Civil War scholar at that, Alan Gelzo of Princeton. Uh, and that really was, was a, personally, a, a disappointment to me. Uh, I've known Alan for a long time, consider him a friend. We have met at many, many Lincoln conferences over the years. His first Lincoln book uh, in the 1990s, I thought, was a brilliant revisionist work that brought the notion of taking religion and religious ideas seriously. Uh, Many scholars over the years had really neglected the religious component of the Civil War and of the thinking of people like Abraham Lincoln. Uh, and, and Gelsel really brought that back uh, to the fore, and it was uh, an important book, and uh, I was happy to have him on the show to talk about it. The, However, in, in subsequent years, I he wrote a book that many of you, I'm sure, have read about uh, Gettysburg, The Last Invasion. Uh, he taught at Gettysburg College for a number of years, and uh, although he was not a military historian, he did decide to write a Gettysburg book, perhaps 
recognizing that's that's where the money is to the extent there is any in the field he went for that and it was a controversial book uh he had some opinions that many people didn't share a lot of the gettysburg guides nitpicked numerous tiny details but uh you know we all make little mistakes i was anxious to talk to him about it on the show and invited him to appear and uh, we were all set it was on the schedule uh, some of you had written to me saying hey you should have this new book on and i was excited about it but it it didn't happen he uh, he didn't call in that evening i was concerned about him checked the next day and it turned out uh, he had simply forgotten uh, he, he just just blew it off and that can happen it has happened once maybe twice in 17 years with other guests so it does happen but uh, you know we move on so I invited him back we had to reset another date several months after that because this show gets scheduled up and uh, again, I had I'd read the book and had all my notes and was ready. And once again, the call in from the guest never came. And he had done the same thing. He stood up the show and me and you, uh, not just once, but twice. I've had, as I said, I've had one, maybe two guests do that in 17 years. And he did it two times. And that's why you've never heard that book discussed on the show. Uh, you know, fool me once, hey, don't do that. I don't like being fooled. Uh, fool me twice, all right, that's enough. And that that's not how the saying goes, but that's how it should go. Uh, so that was the end of it. Um, and uh, I, I was disappointed in him for that, but you know, I guess we could move beyond it. But to appear in support of a panel that essentially argued for an anti-intellectual approach to American history, to a non-critical thinking approach, to approach that says, let's not uh, look at the whole body of what has happened in our past and recognize that there is good and bad. I, I personally like what Abraham Lincoln said when describing the Declaration of Independence, he said, of course, the Founding Fathers did not mean to say all men were actually being treated as though they were equal. They, they set up all men are treated equal as a guide, as a, a marker, something we could always strive for and never perfectly reach. And as historians, studying the imperfections of our attempt to reach it is as important as acknowledging the, uh, the, the luster of the ideal itself. And the idea that we shouldn't do that somehow is, is just unworthy of, uh, of a history professor. Uh, as to the other people at that gathering, I have no further comment. Well, hopefully next week we'll be talking in these few introductory minutes about uh, college football or something else, but I thought it was worthwhile getting that on the table. Before bringing in our guests, a quick moment to say thank you, uh, and a really sincere thank you to everyone who's contributed uh, this month, September 2020, to Civil War Talk Radio. These donations are going to the scholarship fund created at East Carolina University on behalf of uh, late Professor Wade Dudley, who was a 
wonderful scholar and teacher and uh, died unexpectedly this past summer just after he retired. Really a, a tragic circumstance. And uh, to all of you who have contributed, uh, I am sincerely grateful. You can find out who's going to be on the show, as always, from www.impedimentsofwar.org. That's where you can donate to Civil War Talk Radio and this month to the Wade Dudley Scholarship Fund. And uh, it's not tax-deductible. I need to repeat that. It's not, uh, it's not a charity. Don't put it on your taxes. Uh, but that's where you can do that. Let's move on. Let's talk with our guest tonight. He is Mark Dunkelman. Mark H. Dunkelman needs no introduction because with his appearance tonight, he becomes the first uh, four-time guest on Civil War Talk Radio. Uh, I attribute this entirely to Mark's relentless self-promotion. And uh, Mark, I hope you know I'm kidding. Uh, Mark, are you there? I am, Jerry. Hi. (laughs) Welcome back to the show. How are you doing? I'm fine, thank you. And regarding the four times, I, I think it's a distinct honor. And I also find it humbling because you have had many guests whose work exceeds mine in importance. so uh, I just very much appreciate your support and interest in my work. Well, your your work is extremely interesting, and I, I think listeners and I share that view that you've you've written about a lot of interesting topics. Uh, you've also done a lot of interesting things in the field, and I wanted to, uh, before asking you about the book, touch on the uh, uh, your efforts to preserve the memorial building uh, that. We talked about last time. Uh, how does how is that going? Tell us what's happening in in uh, in, in preservation world. Yes, uh, Camp Citizens Advocating Memorial Preservation now is the owner of the former Cattaraugus County Memorial and Historical Building in the county seat, Little Valley, New York, and the adjacent Board of Elections building. And we just put a new roof on both of the structures, which is a big, big step forward, but we still have a long way to go. And I would encourage your listeners to uh, visit catcomemorial.com. That would be C-A-T-T-C-O memorial.com to learn more about our group and our effort to um, restore and reuse this uh, structure, which is Cattaraugus County's most important Civil War monument. And, you know, we're in an era when Civil War monuments are in the news, often uh, mm-hmm. where communities are turning against their local Civil War monuments if they commemorate uh, the Confederacy and specifically ideals of the Confederacy that people no longer subscribe to, uh, or if they are positioned in such a way as to serve functions other than remembering history. In contrast, uh, there are also memorials that are coming down around the country out of sheer neglect. that people are unaware of them, and, and uh, you're preventing that from happening in your case. In this case, the county voted to demolish the building, and that's what led to camp being formed, to, to save it initially, and uh, that was a process that played out over a couple years, 
before the county finally decided, oh, we'll sell it to these preservationists and see what they can do with it. And, and they weren't going to demolish it out of any ideological feeling. They, they just wanted to get rid of the building. Is that correct? It had, yeah, it had been abandoned. It, it had served from its dedication in 1914 until the year 2004 as the county historical museum, which was what it had intended to be all along. But then they moved the museum out of it to a town 23 miles away. And it sat neglected and abandoned after that. And uh, then I guess they figured there's no purpose in keeping this empty building, you know, right opposite the county center in the heart of the county seat and voted to demolish it using 125000 bucks of casino money. Ah, <laughs> so, so not even a lot of savings there necessarily. Well, money is also uh, uh, central to the next question I want to ask you, which is, as I open this book, Gettysburg's Unknown Soldier uh, is a paperback book, very nice quality, nice quality of paper and, and uh, uh, a pleasure to hold. But I see it's actually got a, a copyright date of 1999. This is a, a 21-year-old book originally published in hardcover by Prager, an imprint of ABC Clio. Uh, let's take a break and find out why a 21-year-old book has come back to life in 2020. So that's the question we'll return with. The book in question is Gettysburg's Unknown Soldier, The Life, Death, and Celebrity of Amos Humiston. The author is Mark H. Dunkelman. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Have we got a high-energy, all-access sports show for you? It's Outside the Huddle, starring Lemond Williams. Each week, join Lemond as he takes callers, discusses the week's top stories in the world of sports, and sits down with active and former players to discuss their transition from sports to business. Outside the Huddle is a great resource for players making career transitions both on and off the field. Tune in Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 Central, and 5 Pacific. For Outside the Huddle on the Voice America Sports Channel. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on The Voice of America Variety Channel. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective, plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite hosts. 
It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Mark Dunkelman, author of Gettysburg's Unknown Soldier, The Life, Death, and Celebrity of Amos Humiston. So, Mark, this book uh, has a copyright date of 1999, but I had never seen a copy uh, until this one that, that I'm holding in my hand now, which is a paperback. What What's the backstory of this this publication? Well, it was initially published in 1999 by Prager, which was an imprint at the time of Greenwood Publishing Group. And they had a $45 price tag on it, which was hefty for a book of its size. Uh, And eventually, Greenwood raised the price after it had been available for a few years to, I think, $75. And... Yeah, and then ABC Clio took over Greenwood and consequently Prager, and they continued to raise the price. And at one point, they were selling the hardcover edition of this book at $101. Well, I should say they were trying to sell it at 101 because I don't think they sold a lot of that at that uh, price. Uh, and it is now still available from ABC Clio as a print-on-demand because the original edition sold out. And they want, I think it is uh, $86 for it, for print-on-demand, which, of course, is of inferior quality. So this is an author's nightmare, Jerry. And yes. for years, I was saying, if this book, people have heard me say this many, many times, if this book could come out in paperback, it could sell forever in Gettysburg, at a, mm-hmm. if it came out at a reasonable price. And... Finally, I connected with Kevin Drake of Gettysburg Publishing, and he published um, my booklet, Gettysburg's Coster Avenue, The Brickyard Fight and the Mural, uh, a few years back. And I asked Kevin, I told Kevin about the Humiston book and asked him if he'd be interested, and he negotiated with ABC Clio, and he purchased the paperback rights. And he brought out the book, and I think, as you indicated, he did a wonderful job with it. Mm-hmm. And um, ABC Clio, I'll thank them for granting us permission to include a new introduction by myself and a foreword by Errol Morris, which uh, I was very pleased to uh, be able to include. And otherwise, the book is exactly the same as it was. That was one of their stipulations, uh, that nothing mm-hmm. else could be changed in the book. So the rest of the book you see uh, is exactly as it was in 1999. Well, that, that does show some of the, the oddities of academic publishing that 
companies like ABC, Clio, Cell, uh, things at such high prices. It's like the old uh, the, the joke about the guy selling apples in the Depression, never selling them for ten cents, and he's selling one for uh, ten thousand dollars. And he says, "I only have to sell one." Uh, that that uh, Elsevier, if that's how you pronounce it, which publishes scientific journals, does, uses exactly that model where. The journal subscriptions cost thousands and thousands of dollars, so no professor can afford them. Only libraries get them and then give them to everybody. Mm-hmm. And our, li- our library just backed out of their deal, uh, which legally they had a clause to let them do that. But we were paying about a quarter of our whole library budget to this one publisher for their scientific journals. And they finally said that was just not sustainable. And, and so this is a smaller version of that, but Thank goodness you're able to arrange it and get this into the hands of a publisher who can make it available for twenty four ninety five. It says on the back, which is a reasonable price for a nice quality trade paperback. Um, it does have the forward uh, did catch me by surprise. I, I, I started reading it, and the first line said, "The worst carnage in the Civil War." Period. Then fifty one thousand casualties. Period. And at this point, I thought. What happened to Mark? He's forgotten how to write complete sentences. Um, they're all they're all fragments. Uh, and then I saw it was by someone else, and I was relieved. And the the style in the book itself is much more amenable to a, a professor, at least. Uh, the book is is I I found it very uh, pleasing to read and, and learned a lot about uh, the story. The Humiston story is well known. Uh, Give us the the quick thumbnail as you do at the beginning of the book So, for any listener who doesn't know what happened to Amos Humiston. Right. Well, here's how the story was told many, many times in the years since the Civil War uh, until I was able to put my book together. After the Battle of Gettysburg, the body of a Union soldier was found on the battlefield dead with nothing on his person to identify him except the ambrotype photograph of his three children, which he had clutched in his hand and gave his last dying gaze to as he expired. And this this single sad clue eventually led to his identification when the story was publicized throughout the North in newspapers, which could not publish the picture because reproducing photographs had not yet been uh, achieved at that point, so the picture was very minutely described. Uh, The three children, their approximate ages, what they were wearing, the youngest one in the middle was sitting in a high chair between his older brother and sister, etc. And a month after the first story appeared in the paper, the family was identified as widow Philinda Humiston and little Frank, Alice, and Fred, the children and their father, Sergeant Amos Humiston of the 154th New York. So that's the way I first found the story in uh, L.W. Minig's guide, uh, Gettysburg, What They Did Here, which a friend of mine, my old friend Christopher Lee Ford, we were teenage Civil War buffs in Buffalo, uh, gave me a copy of this book, and that's the first time I ever saw the the Humiston story. And... uh, after the late Mike Whiney and I published the Hardtack Regiment, our history of the 154th in 1981, which told the Humiston story much as I just told it to you, mm-hmm. uh, I decided to 
look into it more because I always thought there was a book there, Jerry. But yeah. the key was to somehow bring Amos to life because in all these tellings, he's, he's a corpse on the battlefield. And I knew that if I could somehow find out more about Amos Thomas than the living man, I could have, I potentially at least could have a book. And through a combination of circumstances, I was able to do it, which so it's, made me very happy. Where did you look for evidence of, and where did you find evidence of, of Humiston's life as opposed to his, his, his afterlife story? Okay, so Amos Humiston, when he enlisted, was living with his family in Portville, Cattaraugus County, New York. And I have a very good friend there, Ron DePollock of the Portville Historical and Preservation Society. And people in Portville had tracked down a descendant of the Humiston family, mm. a fellow named David Humiston Kelly, who's a brilliant guy in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. And uh, David was a professor of archaeology there. He is one of the people that helped decipher the Mayan code. He was mm. an expert on calendrics. And he was an avid genealogist. And I got in touch with David, and eventually I spent a week out at his house in Calgary, and he had inherited the Humiston family legacy. Photos, uh. letters, all sorts of material on the family. And I knew that this was going to be the, uh, the sources that I could use to relate the family's life after the orphanage, uh, and I figured readers would be interested, what happened to these three children and their mother after this incident mm -hmm. that had made them celebrities across the North? But David had lost track of one branch of the family. David was a descendant of Frank, the oldest boy, mm -hmm. and he had known some of Fred's descendants, but he had lost track of them. So... Friends of mine, Dan and Meg Warren here in Providence, invited me to, and my wife Annette, to a dinner party at their home. And one of the reasons they invited me was because they wanted to introduce me to a friend of theirs named Gardner H. Shattuck. Tuck Shattuck, uh, like Dan, was an Episcopal minister, and he also had written a Civil War book called A Shield in a Hiding Place, which was the history of religion in uh, the Civil War armies. Mercer hmm. University Press, highly regarded book. So Tuck and I just, you know, immediately started jabbering Civil War history <laughs> at this party. And at the end of the night, he said, well, what are you working on now, Mark? And I said, the Humiston story. Instantly, he knew what I was talking about. And he said, well, Amos's granddaughter... Eleanor Cox, who turned out to be Freddie's daughter, was the secretary at a parish I had up in uh, Massachusetts. And this was the branch of the family Dave Kelly had lost track of. So wow. this is in the pre-internet, pre-cell phone days. I called information. I got a number for a Mrs. John Cox in Medford, Massachusetts. I called the number. A guy answered the phone. 
I introduced myself. I explained what I was looking for. He said, well, I'm Ellen Lawrence Cox, and Eleanor's my mom, and she's in a nursing home. <laughs> and I only come by the house now and then to uh, take a look and check, make sure everything's right. And then he said, I've got Amos's wartime letters. Uh-huh. Why don't you come on up and take a look at them? Wow. How long do you think it took me to get up to Massachusetts, Jerry? Well, I, I know exactly where Medford is. I've called many contradances there uh, back when I oh, lived really? in Franklin. Yes. Uh-huh. And uh, uh, so from Providence, you were there within the hour, uh, depending how fast you drive. I got up there pretty quick. I'm 95, I got up yeah. There quick. Oh, Jerry. And then I'm holding Amos's wartime letters. Uh-huh. And I open them up. And one of the first ones I looked at was dated May 9th. 1863, and I scan it, and I come to this line. I got the likeness of the children, and it pleased me more than anything you could have sent me. How I want to see them and their mother is more than I can tell. I hope that we may all live to see each other again if this war does not last too long. And I said, this is it. Here's my book. Here's my book. Amos can speak to us again. It was so incredible. It was absolutely incredible. And I became very, very good friends with Dave Kelly and Alan Lawrence Cox. And we got to get Dave used to come to Harvard Harvard. To go to conferences. <laughs> yes, Harvard, Jerry. You've heard in, of it. In, I've heard of it. I've, I've, I may have a degree from there. But, uh, but let's move on. This is too interesting a story. Keep going. Yeah, yeah. So... Dave used to make the trip from Calgary to, to the Boston area where Alan was living, and the three of us would get together, and we went up to Jaffrey, New Hampshire, which is where Frank settled in the post-war years and became the beloved town doctor, and Frank, Fred, their mother, Philinda, are all buried in the cemetery there, and we also were together in 1993 for the dedication of the Amos Humiston Monument on North Stratton Street in Gettysburg, which is the only monument to an individual enlisted man on the entire battlefield of Gettysburg. So I became good friends with these two gentlemen, and, and they, they helped me so much by sharing this material that enabled me to write the book. And then another crazy thing happened. One of the newspaper articles that came out after Amos was identified mentioned that he had made a whaling voyage to the South Pacific. And I happened to have a neighbor, Virginia Poe Adams, who used to be the librarian at the New Bedford Whaling Museum. So I contacted Poe and I said, how can I find out if a guy named Amos Thomaston ever sailed out of New Bedford on a whaling ship? She said, I'll get back to you, which she did in a couple days. And she said, he sailed out in New Bedford in December of 1850 on the ship Harrison, and the logbook is in the Providence Public Library, uh, right in my backyard. This, this, so, you know, I think we, we, we're giving listeners a false set of expectations about how historical research works because these are just magnificent uh, discoveries that you had in the process of putting this together. Uh, it, well, you're not telling us the story of all the dry holes, of all the 
unsuccessful attempts to find things. But but what a great uh, uh, series of, of serendipitous moments. Well, this is also unspooling over a period of years, Jerry. Right. And, right. you know, I'm sending out letters to historical societies and archives and, and other places and trying to track down as much information as I can. Uh, you know, going to Gettysburg, going through their files at the National Military Park's, uh, you know, library. Mm-hmm. But uh, I really... <laughs> I really just went off on the whaling stuff because New Bedford is a half hour or so away from Providence, and I was able to get over there and go to the New Bedford Free Public Library and the Whaling Museum, and I actually wrote three chapters about the whaling voyage of the Harrison, uh, which uh, they made me cut back to two, but it was very exciting to me because the whaling industry is one of the best, I think, documented early American industries out there that has vanished. And and um, I really just enjoyed learning about it and putting together the story of that voyage because it was so important to Amos. Um, he would tell his wife, <laughs> Philinda, that someday he wanted to go take her back to Hawaii. He loved the Hawaiian Islands where the whale ships used to put in in spring and fall to uh, reprovision before they go back either north or south to go to the whaling grounds. Well, I will say those chapters on whaling, I, I thoroughly enjoyed. I'm one of the people who likes to reread Moby Dick just for the whaling chapters. Uh, and and the sense that one gets from that book, I got from this book, that I would know what to do. If you dropped me into a, a whale boat rowing away from the, the ship after a whale, and you told me I was the number four, I would know what to do because I've read in your description and, uh, and so on. Uh, but we're going to talk uh, about the Civil War as, as well, about uh, Humiston's experiences there, which you've learned about. We're going to have to take another break before we do that. So we'll step away quickly, come back more with Mark H. Dunkelman, author of Gettysburg's, Gettysburg's Unknown Soldier, The Life, Death, and Celebrity of Amos Humiston. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Attention, if you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited, Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. 
These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. Tonight, our guest is Mark H. Dunkelman. We're discussing his book, Gettysburg's Unknown Soldier, The Life, Death, and Celebrity of Amos Humiston. Uh, So, Mark, we've been talking about Amos Humiston's pre-war career, uh, his whaling voyage from New Bedford. You also describe him uh, working as a harness maker. And again, when I finished your chapter describing his work, I thought, if you gave me the tools, I could make a saddle based on what I just read. It wouldn't be a very good one, but the detail is, uh, you know, it's the kind of thing that I just love. I I really enjoyed reading that. um, if I may, Jerry. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, how do you research harness making? I tried looking for books. I couldn't find anything. One day, out of desperation, I looked in our yellow pages, and lo and behold, harness maker. <laughs> LaSalle harness, David LaSalle is one of the top harness makers on the East Coast. So I went out to the Peep Toad Road in North Situate, Rhode Island, and David gave me a an education in how to make harnesses and let me borrow these old harness making tool catalogs and and that's how I that's how I learned about the harness making. Well, well it, again it shows the hands-on approach is, is very successful here. You have two images of uh, Philinda Humiston reproduced in the book. One the, the copy of the earliest one known and then one of her as an elderly person. Mm-hmm. And I I was struck looking at them that her features appear to have African influence. Have you noticed that, or am I just seeing that in the way it's reproduced in the book? Is there is there any yeah. possibility? No, I don't believe so. Uh, just mm-hmm. from the genealogy, which David Humiston Kelly, being an avid genealogist, really looked right. into. Um, yeah, particularly the earlier one. There's a third one in which uh, that is less indicated, if you will. Mm -hmm. And incidentally, I just might mention that uh, Kevin Drake of Gettysburg Publishing has a Facebook page for my book. And I've been sharing photos and uh, information that, uh, you know, didn't make it into the book on that Mm -hmm. Facebook page. If people are interested, I'd recommend that they check it out. Uh, we recently posted the third, and that's there are only three known photographs of Philinda. Many more of the now, children. 
since we're doing Civil War talk radio, uh, listeners who've read your book on the 154th New York, or if they've been to Gettysburg and had a chance to go out of the way up Stratton Street and explore the the brickyard where uh, you've painted a mural of the 154th New York in action, uh, then they might know the story. But not everybody does know the story of this bit of urban combat uh, in which the regiment was driven away from its position, and, and that's where Sergeant Humiston was mortally wounded. Uh, can you give us a thumbnail sketch of that action? Yeah, if you don't mind me prefacing it, though. Uh, sure, absolutely. Two months before, they were at Chancellorsville, where they mm-hmm. lost 40%. And as Amos reported in a letter to Felinda, he was hit by a spent ball just above his heart. Hmm. And uh, he he survived. And as I put it in the book, this was an accident of velocity and trajectory. Had he been killed at Chancellorsville, he would have been tossed into a common burial pit along with the rest of the 154th dead by the Confederates, who, of course, swept the 11th Corps from the field, and we would have never heard of Amos Humiston. But he did survive, and two months later he was at Gettysburg, and uh, Coster's brigade was sent to cover the retreat of the 11th Corps and rushed off of Cemetery Hill down through the town and out to John Coon's brickyard where they took position and very quickly were overwhelmed. And uh, as one member of the regiment put it, the only ones that got away were the best runners. Most of the regiment was captured. There were a number killed and wounded, but... Most were captured by the enemy. They were literally surrounded, gobbled up, as more than one member of the regiment put it. Amos was able to extricate himself, and he made it about an eighth of a mile Mm -hmm. to the approximate spot where his monument now stands on North Stratton Street, you know, heading, heading south toward Cemetery Hill before he was killed. So 78% of the regiment become casualties at this action. It, it, it's they're, they're more than gobbled up. They're, they're destroyed as a unit. Uh, mm-hmm. And then, then afterwards, uh, you know, his body is found with the, the amber type in his hand. What, let's, let's pick up the story there. Uh, how does it get from, from the hand of a dead person to the Philadelphia newspaper? Well, there's, that's a little bit complex. It's uncertain uh, exactly who found Amos, but it wound up in the hands of Ben Shriver, a former Gettysburg resident who had moved southwest of Gettysburg to a place called Graffenburg Springs. And Dr. Jan, John Francis Borns, who was a Philadelphia resident, used to spend his summers at his hometown of Waynesboro, which is also west of Gettysburg. And so Dr. Borns was in Waynesboro when the battle was fought. And he was not only a physician, but he was a volunteer delegate for the United States Christian Commission. And so volunteer physicians that were headed to, to Gettysburg from the west were rendezvoused at Chambersburg, So Bournes went to Chambersburg and then proceeded on his way to Gettysburg, and he had a couple companions with him, and their vehicle broke down at Graffenburg Springs. So he went into Ben Shriver's tavern 
and he saw the ambrotype, and he heard the story, and he realized that this was the clue. This was could identify the, the uh, soldier and the family. And so he took it to Philadelphia, and in October, October 19th, 1863, was when the first stories came out in the Philadelphia Press. And as I said before, it hopped from paper to paper all across the North. So these stories are essentially saying, we've got an unknown soldier, no one knows who he was, all we know is these are, this is the picture he was looking at as he died. And that, that's father, the story. Yeah, whose father is he? Yeah. And it just touched hearts throughout the North. I mean, it's, it's such a dramatic story. It's a melodramatic story. Um, and people really responded. Now, Dr. Bournes, the same time he was planning these stories in the paper, were having carte de visite copies made of the amber type to send to inquiring people. And it was a religious paper published in Philadelphia, the American Presbyterian, that also published an article about the dead soldier. And a copy of it made its way to Portville, New York, and into the hands of Philanda Humiston. And when she read the description of this photograph, she realized it sounded very much like the one she had sent to Amos who she hadn't heard from since the Battle of Gettysburg. So she had a person write to Dr. Bournes and in return received a carte de visite and as soon as she saw it, she knew that she was a widow and the three children were orphans. Now, there's there's almost a happy ending to the story in that the attention that this gets leads to the formation of an association to create an orphanage in Gettysburg to mm-hmm. take care of soldiers' children, uh, and the Humistons are involved in that, but uh, but no good deed goes unpunished, and the uh, uh, what becomes of the orphanage? Yeah, the orphanage uh, was founded actually in 1866, and... It thrived for a number of years. The Humistons lived there for a number of years. But a couple things happened. A matron named Mrs. Rosa Carmichael was hired by Dr. Bournes, who was very active in the orphanage. And eventually, well, rumors started circulating in Gettysburg that she was mistreating the children. And in 1876... She refused to allow the orphans to carry out a role that they had played since the orphanage or since the founding of Memorial Day, the establishment of Memorial Day. The orphans were the ones that used to go into the Soldiers National Cemetery and decorate the graves with flowers. But in um, May 1876, Mrs. Carmichael refused to let the orphans go do this. And that aroused the ire of the Skelly Post, uh, Gettysburg's GAR Post, which was already looking into these rumors about mistreatment of the orphans. And so they started digging deeper, and eventually Rosa Carmichael was charged with cruelty to the orphans. Um, the most famous 
uh, aspect of this cruelty was eventually revealed that she had literally carved a dungeon into the basement of the orphanage where she had shackles and chains to punish the treant children. Wow. And while all this is going on, it turns out that Dr. Borns was embezzling money raised by Sunday schools for the little orphans. And so this great good that had arisen out of the tragedy of Amos Humiston's death, the orphanage, eventually met its own sad, dramatic demise. Where the place was closed down, and that was that. Is the orphanage building still there today? Well, yes. There are two buildings. Uh, one was added um, while it was still functioning as an orphanage. And the older one was Charlie Weaver's museum for a number of years. If you remember Charlie Weaver, the actor Cliff Arquette had this character. Mm-hmm. And since then, it's now Ghost, Ghostly Images, I believe is the name of it, in Gettysburg. And you can go there and, and get a ghost tour by ghost paraphernalia. And you can go down into the basement and hear the story and even go into the little dungeon, which I've done. Wow. Uh, Next door, the newer orphanage building is now Civil War Tales, uh, T-A-I-L-S of Gettysburg. And I know that you've interviewed the Brown sisters uh, of, you know, cat diorama fame. (laughs) Yeah, listeners, if you haven't, uh, you'll have to go research that one. Uh, But it's quite a place Uh, and, and, and definitely worth a visit. So, the the legacy of the Humistons continues. Um, they go on to lead, uh, I guess, reasonable lives. They, they don't suffer uh, quite quite as much as the uh, certainly the orphans did. Uh, we have just time for a, a final question or two. What became of the original amber type? According to Alice Humiston. Uh, Dr. Borns got his hands on it. He he returned it to the family, but eventually he got it back, and they never saw it again. So the whereabouts of the original amber type are unknown. It's one of the great mysteries of the Humiston story. Wow. Well, you have solved many of them, and so maybe somebody listening uh, to this will have a clue that they can share, and we can find out where that is. In the meantime, this book... I found, besides learning how to make saddles and hunt whales, uh, I learned a lot about uh, Humiston's great tactical description of the 154th New York at Gettysburg. And uh, just when you think you've read everything there is about Gettysburg, there's always something new. This book is an example of that. It's called Gettysburg's Unknown Soldier, The Life, Death, and Celebrity of Amos Humiston. The author is Mark H. Dunkelman, who's been our guest tonight. Mark, it has been a pleasure, as always, having you on the show. Jerry, thanks very much. I enjoyed it. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
Have a good week.